It is so good to see so many people back at church and uh, 8 o'clock and this morning, seeing you guys talking to each other and interacting with each other. And just uh, some of you are excited about that. Some of you aren't sure, I guess, about that. But uh, it seems like things are kind of getting back to normal, and that's good. I wanted to share, as I start this morning, share a story from a ministry experience that I had. I served before I came to Longview in Weatherford, Texas, at a church, Northside Baptist Church. And when I got there, I was the youth pastor. When I got there, um, I was told that one of the things we do is participate in the Ministerial Alliance, which was a group of churches uh, that plan ministry events, in that case for youth. And so one of the things we did, and you guys probably have been to one of these, we plan fifth quarters for kids. So after every home football game, uh, there's four quarters in a football game, and then there's a fifth quarter. The fifth quarter was like a fellowship event at one of the local churches. Um, and so usually about three or four or five home games. And so each year, one of our churches that were a part of that would plan one of those events. Well, the first year that I was there, I planned the event. I was excited about it. I didn't really ask anybody what we should do. I just thought, you know, I'm going to have three or 400 teenagers in our worship center. Uh, so I brought the guy in who'd been our camp musician and said, do a concert for us. And then at the end of that, tell people how they can meet Jesus. You know, seems like the right thing to do, right? Well, we did that. And, and he didn't do a high-pressure thing. He wasn't trying to beg people to be persuasive. He just shared the gospel and cast it out there. Well, oh, my word. Oh, my word. You would think that I had done something heretical. The other churches, not all of them, but some of them in town were like, cannot believe he did that with my kids from my church. They went to his church, and they shared the gospel, and kids got saved. I cannot believe he did that because at their church, when they would do a fifth quarter, it was a dance or a movie or a fun thing, which is, you know, that's fine. That's all good. But in our church, I was just like, well, I just want to share the gospel. That's, you can have that many kids together in one place. And in Weatherford, it's kind of a, you know, it's one school town for the most part. The high school used to be right in the middle of town. So you could go to the school on a Friday night to a football game, a home game, and you'd see everybody from your church and everybody from your youth group. And everybody was there, and so a lot of kids came to these things. So I just thought it's a perfect opportunity to tell people about Jesus, to tell kids about Jesus Christ. Well, the next year, so I was there two years. First year I did that, didn't ask permission, just did it. Second year I thought, well, I'll do it again because, you know, um, we're going to share the gospel. That's who we are as a church. So we did, and there were churches in our town who would not tell their kids about our event, would not even want their kids to come to our event. Right? That happened. Now, why am I telling you that story? Because these are churches that would say that they believe the gospel and even say that they preach the gospel. But the question is, which gospel? And that's what I want us to think about this morning. I want to talk about unity and the gospel from Acts 15. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and find that and turn to Acts 15. Because I think this is a very relevant topic and subject for us in modern day Christianity, even here in East Texas. And you'll understand why in a minute. But if you have your Bible, go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for God and for his word. And I'm going to read aloud Acts 15, 1 through 12. And you can follow along silently in your uh, copy of God's word there. And this is what it says. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about the issue. And uh, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, 
They were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you're aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul Describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Thank you. You can be seated this morning. And so Paul and Barnabas, just context, they're back from their very first mission trip where they've gone throughout Asia Minor and they've told people, Jews and Gentiles, about Jesus Christ. And for the most part, they have experienced a lot of threatening behavior from Jewish people because the Jewish people didn't like that they were sharing the gospel in synagogues and teaching people about Jesus because remember they're the ones that crucified Jesus and they believe that that's heresy and that that's a blasphemy to say that God could be three in one the Trinity and so essentially um, they've opposed Paul at every turn and yet Paul has been unthwarted Paul and Barnabas have gone around and told people about Jesus they've started churches uh, and they've seen amazing things that God has done so now they've come back home sort of to their home church to the church that sent them out and they're reporting all that God has done and up until this point, all the threats have been external from outside the church. But this passage of scripture represents really the first threat internally that happens to Christianity and happens to the church. And so I want us to consider this morning as we look at this three really important questions, essential questions, because as I said a minute ago, I believe these questions and this topic is relevant for us today. And the first of these questions is this, how important is unity in the church. Paul and Barnabas have come back and they've talked about how the Lord has blessed all these people and what they've seen the Holy Spirit do through their lives and everybody's getting along wonderfully and everybody's happy and everybody's having joy and then all of a sudden these people come from Judea and begin to say wait 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 a minute and they just want to pour cold water on what the Lord's doing by saying uh, what you guys went and did really wasn't right. You went and told people about Jesus, but did they get circumcised? Did they follow the law? Because if they didn't do those two things, they can't really be saved. So what you just went and spent three years doing was a waste of time. That's really what they're saying. So maybe you've had one of these uh-oh moments, you know, when everything, everybody's getting along in your family or at work or maybe even in your connect group, and then all of a sudden there's one of these moments where everybody goes, uh-oh. <laughs> this, somebody brings something up that's not in sync with what everybody else thinks or believes. And it's kind of one of those moments where you have to say, is this a big enough deal to really deal with this or should we just let it go? Well, Paul and Barnabas obviously want to deal with this. They're not going to just let it go because it says they got into a serious debate. They're arguing about what the gospel is really all about. So how important is unity? Well, Jesus prayed for our unity. John 17 is the conclusion of basically three chapters where John 14 to John 17, Jesus is last discourse with the disciples in the upper room on the last night of his life and he's uh, sharing 
with the disciples what, what's going to happen and things that are going to come and trying to prepare them. And this is what he says. He prays for them in John 17, verse 21. He says to the Lord, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you are in me, so they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So four times, Jesus prays for our unity, not just for the original disciples' unity, but really for our unity as his church. So you would have to say that unity to Jesus is a very high value. He had a very high value on that. And yet these men have come in, these Judaizers have come into the church at Antioch, and they're disrupting the unity. People get disrupted in their unity or divided over a lot of different things. And in church, we're kind of famous for that, right? What color should the carpet be? Should there be a clock in the room, even though nobody pays attention to it? Should the pastor wear a coat or a tie? How long should his beard be? Should he even have a beard? I mean, we get all these weird things that we get divided over. First church I served in, I was a youth pastor and a janitor at this little church outside of Tyler. And I was thrilled to be both, by the way. And so part of my responsibilities to cleaning the church and being the janitor were having to vacuum and stuff. Well, there was this huge church organ in the main hallway of the church. That's usually not where you put an organ in the church, in the hallway. It was there, and I had to vacuum around. So I went to the church secretary one day, and I said, what is the deal with the organ in the hallway? We have an organ in the sanctuary. Why is there an organ in the hallway? She goes, well, the organ in the hallway was given by a family in memory of a loved one. And you'll notice there's a little brass plaque on it. It says who it was given and when it was given, and you'll notice the piano matches the organ, and you'll also notice that there's a sign on above each door as you come into the worship center that tells how many people came this week and how many people came last week and how many people gave this week and on and on, and they all match. And she said, we can't get rid of the organ. I said, well, what's wrong with the organ? It doesn't work. It, it, it can't get the parts for it anymore. And I was like, so we're just going to keep an organ in the hallway of the church that we can't get fixed because somebody gave it in honor of someone else. That's it. I said, okay, I'm new here. I don't really know how things work, but that seems weird to me. She goes, I said, why can't we just get rid of the organ? She goes, if we got rid of the organ, the church would split. I mean, it would just be divided. So one day I'm up at the church cleaning, and this guy comes, and he actually unplugged my vacuum cleaner. I'm, you know, you're vacuuming along. You're like, what happened? And so I trace it down, and he's like, hey, come here with me. I want, I want you to help me. He's a church member, and he's got these furniture dollies, and we load. he says, I want you to help me load this organ up. So I'm thinking, Something's going on here, man. So we put the organ on the furniture doll. We wheel it down the hallway. He's got his truck backed up to the church, man. We put the organ up in the back of his truck. He says, get in. So we drive about three or four miles down the road from the church, through a pasture, pull up behind a barn, get out, take the organ out, and put it behind the barn in this pasture. I get back in the truck. He goes, don't ask any questions. I get back in the truck. We get back to the church, and I go, well, he goes, you never saw this, and this never happened, okay? <laughs> and I said, oh, this church is fixing to split wide open. I mean, I don't know what's fixing to happen, but what do I say when they come ask me? You never saw anything, right? So guess what? No one ever asked a question about what happened to the organ. It didn't split the church, right? So we get divided in church sometimes over little bitty things. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is Paul is saying, yeah, unity is really important, but, but this is really important, what's happened here in terms of the gospel and what you guys are doing. Now, think about love for a second. Paul, or actually Jesus said that, that this is the mark of distinction for those of us who follow him. He said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That's John 13, 35. 
So he, Jesus said, people outside the church will know if you're my follower by the way you love each other inside the church, each other. Well, Paul said a similar thing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. So, so here's the question. How important is unity in the church? Well, if we're going to love each other, unity is very, very important. Obviously, Jesus prayed for our unity. He said this is the way that people will know us, is the way that we get along with each other. So unity is very, very important. But is it the most important thing? Paul and Barnabas have been out engaging people with the gospel, and now they've come back, and there are these Judaizers who've come and begin to teach different things about what the gospel is really all about. And Paul and Barnabas are like, wait a minute, and it says they engage them in serious debate. So here's the question. If Paul knew how important love was, is it mutually exclusive to say that you can love somebody, but you can never disagree with them? No. Paul's saying, I can love you and still disagree with what you're saying and what you're trying to teach here. So what Paul's doing when it says he debated them in serious argument, he's not contradicting the principle of loving them. He is, he is simply trying to hold up what the gospel is and what the truth of the gospel is all about. So when I think about unity and we think about being unified as a church, just take our church, for example. What is it that unifies us? Well, several things. One, our mission unif unifies us, that we share the same mission, which is people leading people to a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That is our mission. So we share that. Those of you who are members here at Marvel, you've, you've agreed that that's your mission, that that's our mission collectively. So you agree about that. Well, values are also a thing that we agree about, that unify us. We share the same values. We have a lot of different things that we'll talk about as values, and I won't go through all those this morning. I talked about that a little bit last Sunday. But one of those, the very first value that we share is biblical truth, that we uphold God's word as the standard for all decisions, actions, and relationships. It's not about feelings. It's not about what you think versus what I think. God's word is the standard. We share those values as a church. So that unifies us because we have the same values. Strategy. Now, one of the things about strategy in church is that strategy changes almost all the time. And if you've been a part of Moberly for any length of time, you know that the strategy that we maybe had four or five years ago has changed. We've got a different strategy. Not all strategy, but strategies in different ministry areas change because we want to not change the truth, but we want to change how we relate to the culture to make the truth more effective in how we communicate it. So we change our strategy, and I guess you can just count on the fact that it will probably change again at some point in the future because we're constantly changing our strategy but not what we believe not our values not our mission and then our vision what is our goal we have the same goal we want to see people come to Jesus Christ and so we share those things and we can be unified about those things but it doesn't mean that we agree about everything does it and I always tell people that maturity means that we can disagree about some things in other words you don't have to be exactly like me and what I think and believe about everything for us to get along with each other for us to be unified there are some essential things, and we talk about those essential beliefs in our membership class, that are important for us to agree on in order for us to have unity together. But immaturity says, no, no, no. You have to be exactly like me, believe exactly like me, agree with me on every single point if we're going to be unified. That's immaturity. That's not who we are as a church. We have a church of, I believe, maturing believers, which says there are some essential things we agree on, and then there's some things we have freedom to disagree about, right? Right? 
So that's really important because, because it, it, it kind of hits the question of how important is unity in the church? Is it important? Yeah. So th- here's the second question. What's more important than unity in the church? Because what's happened is these Judaizers have come in, and a Judaizer is someone who basically is a person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, but also still believes that you need to practice Judaism in order to be saved, which is what they say. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law. That's Judaism. So it's kind of a mixture. It's a hybrid of Christianity. It's Jesus plus Judaism is what it really is. And so what they're saying is, yeah, Jesus is great, but he's not enough. You've got to have Jesus plus Judaism. You've got to have Jesus plus circumcision. You've got to have Jesus plus keeping the law. And so that comes in and creates quite a stir. So, so the question is, what's more important than unity. The truth is more important than unity. I, I've, I've talked about this before, but I, I think a lot of people in our culture have what, what's called comic book religion. And you know, comic books are great, right? But they're totally imaginary. imaginary. They're not, nobody believes there's really a Batman somewhere or a Spider-Man, I hope. Sorry, kids. I don't know if I just crushed your world or not. But we don't really believe people can like make webs and climb walls and stuff like that. We know that somebody created these images out of their mind that are imaginary that have superhuman power and there's a good guy and there's a bad guy and that's generally the story of everyone and then there's you know the plot changes or whatever and they draw cute pictures of them and put them in books and some people like to read comic books that's great but nobody thinks comic books are real I don't think no adult does anyway right we don't think comic books are real but when people do religion in their lives sometimes that's how they approach their religion they just make it up they just imagine. I said a minute ago that our, our belief is that God's word is the standard for all decisions, actions, and relationships. But that's not the way the culture operates. They operate with kind of this comic book religion idea that basically you do whatever you want, whatever's true for you, I'll do whatever's true for me, right? Just leave each other alone. Everything will be okay. And in a sense, that's what the Judaizers are doing. They're saying, yeah, what you've been teaching Paul and Barnabas about Christianity, about the gospel, not true. This is what's true. Well, there could have come, somebody could come in the next week and said, no, neither one of you guys are right. It's the third thing. And so there had to be a standard. There had to be some way to come up with the reality. Do you know that we have people in our culture currently that are what's called Unitarians? And, and maybe you've seen Unitarian buildings, churches that you'd say, well, I always kind of wondered what they believe. Unitarian Universalists is how they refer to themselves. And, and here's what they believe. This is literally what they believe from their website. Adherents of Unitarian Universalism base their beliefs primarily upon their own experiences and are not committed to any one religious system. Unitarian Universalists view the Bible as a book of poetry, myth, and moral teaching, a completely human book, and not truly the Word of God. They reject the Bible's portrayal of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, leaving the concept of God up to each individual's imagination. So in other words, you can believe whatever you want to believe and go to the Unitarian Church. They can have unity because anything goes. You can believe anything you want. How could you ever be divided if you can't disagree with each other, right? You can believe what you want, you can believe what you want, and they can be mutually exclusive ideas, but we can all just say, hey, we believe what we believe. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm like, why go to that church? Why go to church if you can just, I mean, what's the point, right? That's not what's happening with Paul. What Paul's saying is, look, there is truth, and it's more important. Unity is super important. But what's more important than unity is the truth. And obviously, if you would have allowed, if Paul and Barnabas or if the council, the leadership council in Jerusalem had decided that that what the Judaizers were teaching was true, 
that you in fact have to be circumcised or you have to keep the law, that would have completely changed the gospel. And in my opinion, would have completely undone what Jesus did when he came. Why did Jesus even need to come if you can continue to be saved by just doing the things that Judaism has always taught you could do to be saved, to be right with God? You don't even need Jesus. So not only does it change the fact that God sent Jesus, but it changes your view of God. Because what we believe is the grace of God sent Jesus Christ, the love that God has for us, sent Jesus Christ to save us because we were unable to save ourselves. We were unable to keep the law. And that's basically what Peter says here is, why would you put a burden on them that we were unable to keep ourselves, right? So what happens here is if you believe if they would have been allowed to do that, it would have changed from a grace-based system back to a works-based system. And that makes it about you. How are you doing? How good of a person are you? Can you save yourself by being good? According to Judaism, yeah. So it changes the focus away from what God did for us to what you can do for yourself takes all the focus off of Jesus. It doesn't really matter what you believe. You can do whatever you want, basically. So recently I had a conversation with a guy who uh, comes in the gym and I, and I never really talked to him before, but uh, I, I would just see him and, you know, one of those things, we never had a conversation. But one day somebody put a picture up in our office of our men's softball team, Marbley's softball team. So I realized that his picture was in the picture. He was one of our team players. And I was like, oh, wow, I had no idea this guy went to Marbley. So the next time he came in the gym. I was like, hey, I'm going to introduce myself to you. And I, I work at Moberly, and, and uh, he acted like he'd never seen me before. And, and I said, and I saw your picture was part of our men's softball team. And uh, so I didn't even know you went to Moberly. And he goes, I don't go to Moberly. And I said, oh, okay. And that's okay because softball can be used to reach out to people. And there are people who don't necessarily attend our church who can play on our team. That's not the issue. But I said to him, I said, well, he goes, I don't go to that church. I said, I said, okay, well, you know, I worked there and um, just saw your association with our church and didn't know that you were a believer. And he goes, no, I go to this other church. He named the church here in town. And he said, uh, he said but listen, I don't want to argue about all that stuff. I, I wasn't <laughs> even, I didn't even start, you know. I was just like, hey, I was just about to invite you. I said, well, he goes, I don't really even go to my church very much. I go occasionally. I said, well, so why don't you come to Marbury? I'd love for you to come to Marbury. He goes, and then he says, I don't, I don't want to argue about all that stuff. And I was like, Okay, well, I don't either. He goes, well, I mean, look, we all basically believe the same thing, right? We all believe in God. We just believe in different paths to get there. And you take your path, and I'll take my path. And if, if we are going to get there in the end. It's all going to be fine. But I don't want to fight about stuff. And I was like, I don't want to fight about stuff either. But I said, there is truth, and there's untruth. I don't want to fight about it, man. I just don't want to. So I, I couldn't get anywhere with him. He was like, had that defense mechanism up right away. He was like, I don't want to fight with you about it, whatever. But there are people who believe that. Right, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere about it, right? You've heard, probably heard people say that. Well, it does matter what you believe. According to Paul, it's worth debating about. It's worth even potentially disrupting the unity of the church over because the truth matters more than unity. If we just came in here and everybody who got up here and preached preached something different, there's no way we could be unified about that. But we preach from the same book. We preach from Scripture. We preach from the truth of God's Word and that's how we find unity together. So the second question is, what's more important than unity? Well, the truth is more important than unity. So here's the third question. What is the truth about the gospel? Are there two gospels? And you say, no, there's one gospel. Well, several years ago, there was a church here in town uh, that was teaching that basically there are certain scriptures that are for Jewish people and certain scriptures that are for everybody else, Gentiles. And, and so this person was coming to our church and going to that church. They're kind of going back and forth. 
And I'd never heard that. I said, now, wait a minute, what? And he said, yeah, that you get up and talk about Romans and you quote Romans, but that's all for Jewish people. And I was like, what? Who told you that? Well, at my church, that's what we teach. There's certain scriptures for Jewish people and there's certain, Jewish, there's certain scriptures for everybody else. So he said, Jewish people get saved one way, everybody else gets saved a different way. Basically, he's saying exactly what Acts 15 is about, that there's two different ways to get saved. And I said, no, wait a minute, that's not... That's not the case at all. There aren't two different ways to get saved. There aren't two gospels. There's only one gospel. And that's what the debate is all about. Are there two gospels? Are there a bunch of different ways to get saved? For example, if I said to you this morning, in order to be right with God, in order to go to heaven when you die and have a relationship with God now, you need to keep the seven sacraments. And that grace is dispensed to you as you keep the seven sacraments or participate in the seven sacraments. There are churches that teach that, okay? Or I could say to you this morning, you know, actually, if you want to be saved, if you want to be right with God and go to heaven when you die, you need to just go out and witness for Jehovah every spare moment of your life, work as hard as you can, don't ever let up because you're never going to know if you're going to be good enough to get there or worked hard enough to get there, so you just better work every waking moment of your life and go door to door and knock on people's doors and tell people about Jehovah in hopes that you may be one of the 144,000 that are going to be saved at the end. We don't teach that here, right? I could. There are churches that teach that. Or I could say to you this morning, you know what? We're all going to heaven. We're already there, right? We're all going to be in heaven at the end. It just depends on what level of heaven you're going to be at. And depending on how you live and how you work between here and there, depends on what level you get to go to in heaven. There are churches that teach that every single week in our community. Is that how you get saved? Or we could do the Jewish thing and say, look, be circumcised. Keep the law. And if you do that, if you're perfect, you get to go to heaven when you die. But is anybody perfect? No. Is that what we teach here? No. Does the truth matter? Yeah, because Peter says here in Acts 15.10, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? There's only one gospel. Look at what he says. Just look at your Bible for a second. In verse 7, this is Peter describing what God has done because the gospel is about what God has done. Verse 7, God made a choice among you. In other words, Peter says, God sent me out to preach to Gentile people, non-Jews. And that's what I've been doing. That's what Paul and Barnabas have been doing. God made a choice. God chose Gentile people to be saved just like he chose Jewish people to be saved. So God made a choice. I would say that's affirmation. And then verse 8, God bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. So if that was not the way you got saved, then why did God send the Holy Spirit to these people? If that was false doctrine that Paul and Barnabas were out teaching people, then why did he confirm it? Why did he affirm it and confirm it by giving them the Holy Spirit? He wouldn't have done that. So what happens is Paul and Barnabas go out and preach and people get saved and they get the Holy Spirit because that's part of what happens when you give your life to Jesus Christ. And it's a confirmation that God has blessed this gospel. And yes, it's new and Jewish minds can't get their minds around it sometimes. It's hard for them. But Paul says it's confirmed by the fact that God gave them the Holy Spirit. And then verse 9, God made no distinction between them, Jews or Gentiles. God's consistent love for all people, for every single person. And the gospel means that God values every person regardless of what they've done. Regardless of how bad of a sinner they are, God still values them enough to have sent Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And then verse 9, cleansing their hearts how? By faith. Wait a minute. Cleansing their hearts by keeping the law? It doesn't say that. Cleansing their hearts by working really hard and going out door to door every day? It doesn't say that. Cleansing their hearts by keeping the seven sacraments? It doesn't say that. Cleansing their hearts by faith. 
Faith, because faith is simple. Faith doesn't require a lot of you. It's not about you. It's about what God does for you. And then verse 11, we're saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, justification. So Jesus said this. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father unless he comes through me. So if there's two separate ways to get saved, Jesus is unnecessary. And what he says here is not true because he says there's no other way to get to the Father, Judaism included, unless you come through me. That's what Jesus taught. So there's this situation in John 6 where uh, the people have followed Jesus around and Jesus has fed them. So now they're like free meal. So they're following Jesus wherever he goes. And Jesus goes to the other side of the lake. Well, they walk all the way around and go find him where he is. And, uh, and he's like, they're like, hey, make some more stuff out of bread and fish for us. You know, we're ready to eat again. You know, that's why they're following him. And in verse 27, it says this, don't, Jesus said to them, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. And they said, uh, what can we do to perform the works of God? This is so important. This is such an important question because they're asking, what do we have to do to be saved? What's our part? What's the part that we do? The work part. What are the works that we have to do? And Jesus clearly says, keep the law. Is that what it says? No, he didn't say that. This is the work of God. Here it is from Jesus's lips that you believe in the one in whom he has sent. That's all you can do. You can't be circumcised enough. You can't keep the law enough. You can't do anything else to save yourself. That's not what the gospel is. From Jesus' own lips, from Paul and Barnabas' lips, from Peter's lips, all throughout your Bible. Somebody asked, the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what do I have to do to be saved? What did he say? Believe, trust. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him. The gospel has consistently been preached throughout the whole New Testament, and the message is the same. You can't do anything to save yourself. And that's okay, because it's not about you. I think sometimes we want to complicate the gospel and, and it, we make it confusing when it's very, very simple. Simple enough for a child to understand it and receive Jesus as their Savior. And some of you were children when you received Jesus as your Savior. And that's not from the Lord. I believe that confusing, um, complicated stuff is from our enemy who wants to put a roadblock up and a barrier up to the gospel. It's not complicated. Now, I know people will say, and I've heard people say, well, theologically, the gospel is very complicated. Well, there, there are things about it that are somewhat complicated theologically, but to explain it to someone, you can explain it to them very simply. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. You can't save yourself. The only way you can be saved is to put your faith in him. And when you put your faith in him, he meets you right there and he saves you 100% guaranteed forever. And that's pretty much it. And your part is simply believing, trusting, knowing that he's the savior of the world, believing he's the savior of the world, and therefore putting your trust in him to save you, not depending that's what trust is, not depending on your good works, not depending on your church attendance, not depending on the fact that you're an American, not depending on anything else or that you're Jewish or anything else, but depending solely on the fact that you've asked him to be your savior and that he's faithful and he will keep every promise and he promises to come into your life and save you when you do that. So if you can't be good enough to earn, if it's not about you, then the blessed news this morning is you can't be bad enough to lose it because it's not about you. Salvation is about a perfect Savior. It's not about a perfect you or a perfect me. I could never be good enough to be saved, nor could you. That's what the Bible says. All have sinned and fallen short of the, of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is what? It's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I love this. Several years ago, I heard this lady speak at a conference, Rosaria Butterfield. And Rosaria described herself before she knew the Lord as a militant lesbian. She was a tenured professor of anthropology at Syracuse University 
and she was anti-Christianity in every possible way. And God began to work on her, began to work on her. She began to read the Bible and to disprove it, but the Bible's powerful and the gospel's powerful. As I told you guys last week, it's the most powerful thing in the world, most powerful thing I know, and her life was changed by it. So she was at this conference, and now she's a pastor's wife, believe it or not. She left all of that behind when she followed Jesus Christ, and she now readily, all the time, talks about Jesus on a very big stage because she wants to make Jesus famous because her salvation is not about her. It's about the Lord. And, yeah, she has a very checkered past, a very dramatic change in her life happened when she met Jesus. But here's what she says about her testimony. She said, the point of the Christian life is not to be confident in yourself. This is heretical and annoying. <laughs> Our hope is in Christ, a daily dependence. Testimonies should not be about self-sufficiency. And so many times when people share their testimony, they end up talking about themselves. The, your testimony is not about you because you had nothing to do with getting saved. Jesus did it for you. My testimony is not about me. I did nothing to save myself except take my little mustard seed of faith and put it in Jesus. Now, the great thing is that's all you got to do. There's not two gospels. What's more important than unity? The truth. What's the truth about the gospel? The truth about the gospel is that whoever wants to come to Jesus can come to Jesus. And so this morning, my gift to you is to offer that to you, to say to you that the greatest thing you could ever do is put your faith in Jesus Christ because he will save you 100% guaranteed forever because he keeps every promise he's ever made. So this morning, I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to pray if you're already a believer for those who are sitting around you. Pray for those who are watching online. This is really important. I'm going to ask no one to leave during this time. This is super important. So this morning, if you would like to receive Christ as your Savior, to just simply put your faith because you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, you believe that he died on the cross and he rose again three days later, and you want him to come into your life and save you, this morning he will do that for you. He will change your life forever. And with nobody looking around but me this morning, if that's you and you'd like to receive Christ, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. Because I want to know if I need to lead you to, to the point of trusting Christ today or not. Thank you. I see that. Thank you. You can put your hand down. Anybody else? It's exciting. Some of you, are, the Lord's dealing with you this morning. And those of you who are watching online, I know some of you are dealing with this this morning as well. And it's what our church is about, is helping people find Jesus because it's all about him. It's about what he's done for us. That's what we celebrate. And so this morning, if you raised your hand, or even if you didn't and you want to receive Christ, then the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's a promise. And so that's, that's just calling on his name to save you. I'll lead you in that because I don't want to leave you to try to figure that out on your own. If you want me to, I'll lead you through that this morning of just calling on his name. So you can repeat the words that I'm going to say or you can use your own words because the words are not magical. What matters is that you believe in Jesus Christ and you want to put your trust in him to save you. So you can just say, dear God in heaven, I want to be saved this morning. I want that more than anything. And I don't want sin anymore. And I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry I've offended you with my sinful life. And I know I can't save myself. And I'm so thankful that I don't have to. I'm so thankful that all I have to do is trust you. And I trust you this morning. I put my faith in you and you alone to save me. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me access to you, God. From now on, a relationship, a real relationship. Thank you. Now, Lord, I love you and I want to live for you. Help me to do that. In Jesus' name.